Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This morning, we want to discuss with our guest, Rabbi Eric Wisnia, the two Torah portions, the double portions read in synagogues throughout the Jewish world this Shabbat. The two portions are known in Hebrew as Bahar, on the mountain, Bahukotai, the laws, and they are read between Leviticus 25.1 and Leviticus 27.34. For those who are unaware of why there are two Torah portions read on one Shabbat, let me give you a brief overview. The Torah is split into 54 portions called parashiot. The entire Torah, as many of you may remember, is read once per year, which works out approximately to one per week. And therefore, though there are 54 weekly portions in the Torah, It is true that there are only 50 or 51 Shabbat in a year. In addition, there are at least two or sometimes as many as four or five times when Shabbat falls on a holiday and the normal weekly portion is not read that week, the special portion for the holiday is read. So how are calendars and the Torah reconciled? Well, in the normal Jewish year, not a leap year, there are 50 weeks with a reminder, remainder of four. In other words, there are 50 or 51 Shabbatot during a normal year. And therefore, there are at least three Torah portions that are not read in a normal year. But if we exclude the holidays, we're now down to 48 Shabbats each year. And therefore, the tradition has identified seven double Torah portions. Now, in every year, they are not all read, and that allows for the Jewish leap year, which is an extra month, to pick up the extra double portions. So this week, we have a double portion. Let me share with you just a little bit of information about them. In Bahar, which means on the mountain, referring to Sinai, God communicates to Moses the laws of the sabbatical year. Every seventh year, all work on the land should cease and its produce becomes free for the taking of all, and it specifically says for man and beast. Seven sabbatical cycles are followed by a 50th year, the jubilee year on which work on the land ceases, all indentured servants are set free, and all ancestral estates in the Holy Land that have been sold revert to their original owners. 
Additionally, in this Torah portion, laws governing the sale of land and the prohibitions against fraud and usury are also enunciated. In the second Torah portion, Bahukotai, God promises that if the people of Israel will keep his commandments, they will also enjoy material prosperity and dwell securely in their homeland. But he delivers a harsh rebuke, known as the tohacha, warning of the exile, persecution, and other evils that will befall them if they abandon their covenant with the eternal God of the Israelites. Nevertheless, the Torah portion says, even when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them a nay, nor will I abhor them to destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am their God. The parashah concludes with a series of laws on how to calculate the values of different types of pledges. My guest this morning is Rabbi Eric Wisnia who has spoken eloquently to us on previous shows. He was the rabbi of congregation Beit Chaim in Princeton Junction, New Jersey, and he retired and is now their rabbi emeritus. Rabbi Wisnia was ordained at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati and has served congregations in Toledo, Ohio. And he is known throughout the Jewish world for his erudition and as a great teacher. Rabbi Wisnia, thank you for joining us on Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Well, thank you for that flattering introduction, Stephen. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, Almost all of it is true. (laughs) So we have two Torah portions to chat about. And let's start and do it in order with Bahar, which is primarily about calculating time. How do you understand this notion of time as it's expressed in both the uh, sabbatical and jubilee year? Well, I I think they're linked, Rabbi. Um, You know, this Torah portion, it, it, it talks about time. Uh, and tells us that uh, time is is sacred, but it, it's really talking about the earth and telling us that the earth is a present from God. It is not an inexhaustible resource. It's a precious commodity, and we have to care for it and not abuse it. So Moshe gets the message from God up on Mount Sinai, Bahar Sinai, and God tells him that God runs the universe, but that God has certain appointments with the Israelite people, Mo'adim, our our holidays, our events, because these are times when God meets us. We have an appointment with God, and he checks in. To begin with, we have the week, the six days of work, because, uh, you know, we uh, the Israelites grew up in the Babylonian world, and six and twelve were the basic numbers. So, of course, God took six days, being a a good Babylonian, to create the universe. And the Jewish, uh, the Chiddush, the thing we invented, was the weekend. Weekends were invented by Jews. 
We made, and actually God gave us the seventh day off and made the weekend. It is, we're told, the day of God. And as uh, the Yiddish author Chad uh, Ha'am, a, uh, a famous uh, Russian Yiddish author of the late 1800s, he said, in an, uh, we translated it into English, as the people of Israel has kept the Sabbath, so the Sabbath has kept the people of Israel. We are given Sabbath observance for our, to reinforce our identity as Jews. It tells us that life is more than work. Family bonding and learning and making a better life for everyone is really what life is all about. So every seven days, we Jews are commanded to reenact this Shabbat ritual and reaffirm our Jewish identity. We begin our Shabbat rituals, we light candles, we have a special Friday night meal, we drink a glass of wine, and we thank God for joy and pleasure. To start the meal, of course, we eat a special bread called a challah, and uh, thank God we have, say, thank God we have enough food to sustain us. To be a Jew is really to appreciate what God has given us. So you speak of Shabbat in a very celebratory manner. But many of our listeners may think of the Jewish Shabbat as a day of rigid uh, observance of laws. Is there some sort of disconnect between that notion of Shabbat as a day of prohibitions and a day of joy? Can they be the same? They they can be, but I, I think too often we forget that Shabbat is for owning, for joy. Um, Shabbat is to teach us. That's why we have um, a a Sabbath of years. The parasha goes on and tells us that every seven years, we have to have a Sabbath of years. It tells us to reenact this one out of every seven with our fields. It seems that the earth itself needs a Shabbat. Thus, Moses tells us that God wants us to plow our fields and grow produce in it for six years, crop rotation notwithstanding, and we did practice that, of course. But to let the seventh year be a Sabbath, a Shabbat for the land. The whole land should lie fallow and unplanted. We should store up enough food to tide us over for the Sabbath, but not plant the fields and let them lie fallow. And more importantly, anything that grows then on its own is deemed to be public property. It does not belong to the the, the owner of the field. And anyone in need is free to come and take from the produce of the field on that seventh year. This is not only public ecology, uh, but it's a forced public charity. So that the, the suggestion is that owning land is a public trust for the community. As you read the Torah portion, um, is the sabbatical year, the one in seven, kind of the paradigm for the one in seven Shabbat? Yes. Even though the commandment for Shabbat comes first, there isn't any specificity in the Torah as to how to celebrate it or observe it, but there is definitely uh, specificity about how to observe the sabbatical year. 
So is that yeah. the paradigm we have for the weekly Shabbat? I think so. I think they're linked together, and that's why the portion does, uh, Bahar Sinai has them uh, as two of its uh, major points, because uh, the land also, the whole universe needs a Shabbat. Shabbat is about a day of rest, a day of family togetherness, a day of study, a day of appreciation of what God has given us. In other words, we, we take it for granted, you know, that uh, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, God tells us, uh, you know, to conquer the land and fill it up because I give it to you guys. Yeah, well, he does give it to us, but to tell you the truth, if we don't take good care of it, we're going to mess it up. I think that's where why the second portion, the Hukotai, fits in so nicely. Because it strikes me that this Behukotai, which means in my commandments and my laws, that, that God is, uh, is telling us um, that um, we Jews have a choice. We can follow God's mitzvot and live a good life, or we can ignore them and kill ourselves with greed and avarice and evil. God is very clear. He wants us to choose life and good for ourselves and our children. And in the, the second portion, God says people can live well and prosper if we observe God's uh, 613 mitzvot. And then Moshe goes on and assures us that we will, if we follow the 613 commandments, we will live in peace on the good land we inherit. So we should just be clear, Rabbi, that the Torah portion doesn't enumerate the traditional 613 commandments. The Torah simply says, if you observe my laws and my commandments, correct? Right. You have to observe, and and God will bless you, yes. Right. So uh, for our listeners, we want to just be clear that the number 613, which is associated with Jewish commandments is a um, extrapolation by that group we call the rabbis of the fifth century of the common era or the third through fifth century who want to enumerate the commandments in the Torah. Uh, right. The, the, the number is a, is a much later construct, yes. Good. But the notion of commandments finds itself not only in the name of the Torah portion, but in the very essential meaning, intentionality of the Torah portion. Right, right. And, uh, and Moses then also gives us the, uh, the other half of that promise, and that is, uh, of course, if you uh, live in peace and, and observe the mitzvot, you will live in peace on the good land and everything will be wonderful. On the other hand, if you do not, if you continue in your nasty, selfish, acquisitive ways, then we will have national disaster, famine, wild beasts, infestation, and war will come and eat us. Now, what is the reality of this? I know many people who, who uh, look at, uh, at, at evil uh, and they say, well, you know, God pays good and God pays evil. And so if you are being punished with a disease or a problem, you must have done something bad. 
because Moshe seems to in, imply that if we observe 614 of the 613 commandments, everything is going to be hunky-dory. Your children will have straight teeth. Your land will be perfectly uh, cultivable. You will have no fungus, no disease, no pests. You'll make a million dollars in the stock market. Your kid will get into the right college, and everything will just be fantastic, and God will bless you for always. Hallelujah. Well, I don't know anybody who thinks that that's literally true, because it doesn't work. I mean, I've tried it. We've discussed this before. I've prayed, dear God, give me a million dollars, and it doesn't happen. Does that mean God doesn't exist? No. What it means is praying for that is rather dumb. So why does Moses say this if Moses knows that the people who hear him who are farmers, I mean, we tend the land, they know sometimes it doesn't rain. Well, is that because God stopped the rain? No, sometimes there are droughts. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. How come bad things happen? To good I don't want to interrupt your flow, but if you could allow me for a moment, sure. when we acknowledge that the Torah portion we're speaking about is written in antiquity. And that there may have been readers of the Torah in antiquity who had a different understanding of how the world worked and the dynamic of the world and associated uh, calamity with uh, God's intervention. Stephen, there are people who still say, I believe my ancestors were as smart as me. I don't think I'm any smarter than they are. I may have indoor uh, plumbing, and I may have uh, the internet, which occasionally works for me. And I may very have rarely. <laughs> I have a cell phone, which I finally figured out how to work. But you know what? I don't. There were some of my ancestors actually believed in the literalism of what Moses is saying. Yes, if you're good, God rewards you. If you're bad, God punishes you. But I don't think most of my ancestors were that dumb or are that dumb because they know, they have seen bad things happen to good people. I refuse to accept the idea that everyone who died in the Holocaust deserved it. I refuse to believe that all the evil I see in the world is God punishing people and giving them retribution. I cannot accept that because that's not the God I believe in. And the, and the Torah portion puts limits on this retribution, in as, and many people seem to uh, ignore this, but our Torah portions is very focused on the land. Both portions seem to be focused on the ancestral land of the Jewish people. Well, and, that was our central possession. That's where we lived and made our living. Okay. That was the major focus of our lives was agriculture. So it's it's not only agriculture, but it is, as the Torah puts it, the place, Hamakom, where Hamakom resides. It is God's yeah. abode. And therefore, right. as the... It's, it rewards us with rain. Right. And the rain doesn't mean in Iowa or in New Jersey, but 
the Torah seems to be speaking to a people establishing their um, communal foundational beliefs in their particular land, similarly to how Americans establish their uh, foundational beliefs as they establish a nation in uh, North America. Um, And there are many examples of that through the world. The idea that if you do the mitzvot and live well, then there will be rain for your crops, low taxes, straight teeth for your kids, a chicken in every pot, a Mercedes in every garage. Wouldn't it be nice if it worked that way? Sure, it would. But you and I, and even Moshe, knew that it doesn't work that way all the time. Bad things happen to good people, and then you die. So why do we read this Torah portion? I'm the one who argues with Moses. I always want to stand up to Moshe and say to him, Come on, fella, you expect me to believe this Pollyanna story? On just what level do you think this is going to work, Moshe? Are you implying that if only I light Shabbos candles, coronavirus will go away? Are you telling me that if I covet my neighbor's new car, the Iranians are going to bomb New York? I mean, let's push that even further. Suppose I'm good, because I'm obviously good, but my neighbor, have you seen his messy lawn? He is a covetous ledger. Is the plague going to get us and affect us equally, or is disaster only going to hit his house and not my house? I think that this Torah portion is speaking to us in a more sophisticated way. I do not believe that my ancestors who heard this Torah portion 2,500 years ago were so dumb that they thought there was really an anthropomorphic God in heaven with a quiver of lightning bolts who instantly sapped evildoers. They knew and saw that bad people can get away with it. Remember in that Torah portion, Mitzorah, we learned that disease is not a punishment from God. God does not send disease down as retribution. Rather, God wants us to cure disease and alleviate disaster. So what's the point here? Why does Moses say this? Moses says this because he wants us to do what it says in the book of Micah, the prophet Micah. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Yes, there are people who believe in the literal, figurative, anthropomorphic deity who sits in heaven and zaps evildoers. But that's not what I've seen. I've seen bad things happen to good people, and what annoys me even more is when good things happen to bad people. But that's the way it works. God does. God allows us free will, and therefore... We have to read this and say, wouldn't it be nice if we all did the right thing and made a utopia? We can do that. And then, yes, we will live a good life. Bad things will still happen. There will always be disease. Accidents will happen. People will make stupid choices. And and, and, and occasionally things will come about that we don't want. But that's not God punishing us. Life can be wonderful if we make it wonderful. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean nothing bad will ever happen to you? That's a nice dream, but I don't believe it happens. 
I'll, I'll, I'll end my tirade here with one of my favorite Torah portions towards the end of Exodus, or end of uh, Deuteronomy, where uh, Moses is talking about a rebellious child. And uh, you remember the portion of Stephen where he says, uh, if your kid is bad, take him to the city square, stand him up in front of all the population, and say, this kid is a rotten wastrel and a drunken bum, let's all kill him. And everybody pick up a stone and throw it at him and kill him. And I see it the same way. Really, Moses? That's what you want us to do? When our kids are bad, we should kill them? Uh, are you yeah, suggesting say, that you didn't have that verse tattooed on your child? <laughs> I had a congregant come into me one day, and she was ranting about her bad kid. She would tell me how rotten this kid was. And I, I, I said to her, you know what? He's, un he's terrible. Let's kill him. And she looked at me and said, what? I said, we should kill him. He's terrible. And she said, no, I don't want to do that. I said, and then I told her the story of Moses saying that. And I said, I think if somebody would have picked up a stone to, to, to kill the kid, Moses would have stopped him and said, idiot, you think that's what we should do? So you think that's? I understand that our listeners are now clear that you don't read the Torah as a literal reflection of the Peshat, of the simple expression of the meaning of the words as they appear in the scroll or on the page. But at what no, point I, I at what point do you as a rabbi help your congregants understand why when the Torah portion speaks about Shabbat, that's important. But when it speaks about um, uh, punishing the recalcitrant child, that we don't take literally. It's a long question, and it's an important question without a lot of time and perhaps deserves its own show. But in the few minutes left to us, how do you make that distinction? Again, I, 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 I feel that my ancestors were at least as smart as me. And if I can look at the Torah and say, you know, when God said stone homosexuals to death, does that mean I have to do it? My response is no. You know, that their world was different than mine and I have to apply it. You know, I have, um, I, I, I live in a modern world and I have to adapt to it. I have the commandments and they are the blueprints of how I should live my life and that I should take God's will seriously. But I have to interpret God's will. That's what our, our rabbis do in the Midrash and the, and the, uh, the Talmud is interpretation of how these laws affect us. And, the Talmud uh, has different uh, tells us that we, we we take we take God's word seriously and apply it. And I can't give you a um, a simple uh, statement as to what we take literally and what we don't take literally. I can refer you to um, the Book of Leviticus, where God says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and even and Rabbi Rashi says an eye for an eye literally. He says, no, you can't do that. 
If someone pokes your eye out, you don't poke his eye out. You pay him money damages. It's an eye for an eye, lo mamash elamamon. Not literally, but rather money damages. That's why we have rabbinic laws and rabbinic courts to determine exactly how do we uh, interpret eye for eye. How do we interpret Shabbat? When the Torah says that if you violate Shabbat, you'll be killed. Does it mean that then we have to execute you? Or does it mean that you'll have a spiritual death? If you don't do Shabbat, spiritually inside, you're going to shrivel up and die. Whereas if you do Shabbat, you'll have a fresh, vibrant soul. That's a euphemism. I don't know how literally we can take anything. But I think each of us, God created us with a brain, and therefore we have to be able to interpret what it is God is saying to us. And yes, when God says, kill your recalcitrant son, that's not God saying that. That's that inner evil inner evil um, uh, thing within inside me that when my kid doesn't want to obey me, I want to beat him to a pulp. But I should never do that. Never. I'm going to leave it at that. One, one should never do that as much as one may want to. My guest this morning has been, as I introduced, uh, Rabbi Eric Wisnia of Princeton Junction, New Jersey, who has helped us understand these challenging Torah portions. You might find a podcast of this morning's show on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. Uh, for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten saying shalom and have a good day. <laughs>